All right, glad to have all of you here today. We certainly are praying for uh, those in our group who are away with illness and various other things today. But we're going to take a momentary brief detour. Many of you have turned already to the book of Daniel. Surprise, surprise. We're going to take a brief detour today and look at things that are related to Daniel topically. Uh, but the first verses that we're going to look at in a few minutes is going to be in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. If you are interested in going ahead to turn there. Two weeks ago, I began the message by asking kind of a philosophical, theological question. What is the root of all the problems in the world today? Uh, what is the root of all the problems in government, in education, in the economy, in our personal relationships, in our family lives, in our private lives? Well, what is the basic root problem? And I think you may remember, if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, you remember that the answer to that question is sin. Sin is the root problem of all of our personal issues and all of, excuse me, of society's ills. The Bible tells us that we are living under the curse of sin. Romans 5.12 says, For by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, because all have sinned. Everything dies, including us, because of the curse of sin. King David wrote in Psalm 51 that he was a sinner from the time that he was conceived in his mother's womb. So we are sinners because we sin, and we sin because we're sinners. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, sin is the transgression of the law. Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 3 that by the law is the knowledge of sin. In Romans 7 and verse 7, he says he would not have known sin except through the law. So we must be exposed to God's law in order to properly identify sin. So when God says, do this, and we don't, or God says, don't do this, and we do, then we find ourselves as sinners in direct opposition to what God says because of what we commit and what we omit. The, the curse of sin that we see from the Scripture not only involves human beings, it extends to the entire created world. We see that very clearly in Genesis 3. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 that creation is under the, the, the bondage of corruption, meaning the bondage of decay, uh, meaning everything in this world is wearing out and winding down and eventually rusts out, wears out, breaks down, falls apart, including us. Paul says the creation is groaning with labor pains, waiting for redemption. So, so we are sin-cursed people living in a sin-cursed world, which is what makes the message of Jesus Christ so incredibly wonderful. The forgiveness of sin, the confidence of eternity with the Lord, it gives us this great eternal hope. And when we humble ourselves before the Lord, and we recognize our sinfulness, and we ask for forgiveness, we are saved, as I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, we are saved from the penalty of sin. That's salvation. And then as we learn to walk in obedience to Christ, we are in the process of being saved from the dominating power of sin over us. That's what we call sanctification. And then when we who have trusted Christ for forgiveness, when we leave this life, 
We will be saved then from the very presence of sin. We call that our glorification. So we're saved in three tenses, in a sense. We're saved from the penalty of sin. Then we are in the process of being saved from that dominating power of sin. We will ultimately be saved from the very presence of sin. And so we've got our salvation, our sanctification, and our glorification all wrapped up in the wonderful message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the root of all the problems in the world today? What is our basic root problem? It's sin. It's our sin and everybody else's sin. We're a bunch of sinners living in a sin-cursed world, and until we address that issue, then our problems in life will never be resolved long-term. Things may get better for a few days or a few weeks, but the root keeps springing back up and will continue to do so until we address the sin in our own hearts. Then we wanted a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to you again, we want to go a little bit deeper than that. What is the, what is the root of our sinful actions and our sinful thoughts and our sinful attitudes and our sinful perspectives? Why do we do what we do? Why do we think what we think? Why do we feel what we feel? Why do we uh, say what we say? And if the root of all of our problems is sin, then what is the root of our sin? And the answer is pride. Theologians from every generation agree that pride is the root of every sin and evil. Pride is ultimately an act of self-worship. Many of you are acquainted with the Bible well enough, most of you are acquainted with the Bible well enough to remember that pride is what made the devil the devil. He wanted to be like God. Pride is ultimately what caused Adam and Eve to be thrown out of Eden. That, that desire to be like God. And, and you know, for, for we who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, God commands us to be like Him in certain of His attributes. Or certain, and when you talk about His attributes, you mean the, the, the qualities of God's character. And God commands us to be like Him in certain of His attributes. When you think of God's love and God's mercy and God's graciousness and God's holiness and God's kindness and God's long-suffering and God's gentleness and His goodness and His self-control, all of those qualities of God are commanded by God for us to develop and demonstrate. But you see, in, in our sinful pride, that's, that's not what we want. We want sovereignty because we like authority. We want omnipotence because we like power. We want omniscience. We want to know everything or have everybody think we do. You see, it says it's those attributes of God that belong only to Him that our pride always inclines us toward. We don't say, oh, I would just love to be merciful like Jesus. We don't say, oh, I would love to have the goodness of God just filling my life. No, we say, I want, I want sovereignty. I want everybody to do it my way right now, because I am sovereign. That's the way we operate, and so that's, that's, that's our pride. And, and of course, the Bible is filled with all kinds of warnings about pride and condemnations of pride. I'll just coach a couple of verses, I think he gave you seven or eight a couple of weeks ago, all by King Solomon. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 16, 5. Then chapter 16, verse 18, they said, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
Chapter 26 and verse 12, he said, of Proverbs, Solomon wrote, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope of a fool than for him. So the root of all of our problems is sin, and the root of our sin, the very foundation of our sinful nature, is pride. And I'm beginning with this brief review and rehashing of those things again today, because the underlying theme of Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5 that we've just been looking at in recent weeks, the underlying theme of those is pride versus humility. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar built this big, huge statue of himself and demanded that everyone worship it. That's pride. And he was so furious that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down to it that he was ready to incinerate them. Pride. In chapter 4, God breaks Nebuchadnezzar and he judges him because of his pride as he sort of struts around his palace and brags to himself about, about how great his kingdom is that he's built with his own brilliance and his own majesty. So God takes away his mind and makes him think he's a cow for seven years until he submits to the sovereignty of God. You've got the pride issue there as well. And in chapter 5 that we looked at last week, Belshazzar is lifted up with pride, and he does blasphemous, wicked things in the eyes of God, even though he knew exactly what God had done to his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, and God judges him for his pride. So with three chapters in Daniel highlighting the issue of pride versus humility, before we move into chapter 6, I wanted to spend some time today thinking about this particular topic. And this week, as I, I was preparing to, to pre preach this message, I, I read through over 80 different verses in the Old Testament and the New Testament that deal with the subject of humility. And, and I, I, I noticed some, some very interesting things. I, I never saw, in all those 80 plus verses, I never saw a command from God to, quote, be humble. The words translated humble or humility almost never appear in the form of an adjective describing someone. The words almost always appear as verbs, action words. So God never says, be humble. God says, humble yourself. It's a verb. It's an action word. It's not a descriptive word. We use it all the time, but it's a humble person. Now, God says on several occasions that he humbled someone, and he says to hang out with people who are, who are humble rather than the proud, but God never says, be humble. I couldn't find it, all those 80 verses, but I found a whole string of verses where God says, humble yourself. It's in a verb form. In the New Testament, there are three verses where God speaks of the humble, those who demonstrate humility, but there are 12 verses where he says to us, humble yourself. It is an act of submission. All of the various words in Hebrew and Greek that translate into English as humble or humility, they all mean 
to be bowed down or to be subject to. It, it is an act of submission. The act or the attitude of, of humility is to be submissive to God, to admit our need, uh, to die to self, to give up our rights. We don't demand anything from God or start thinking that we deserve something from God or think that we have earned something from God. So to humble yourself is to decide and live like God is worthy and that God is the ultimate authority and that God has the right to do with us whatever he wants to do. We recognize his authority in our lives and his authority over our lives. And, and we accept all things as coming from the hand of God. You see, to humble yourself is an act of the will. It is a decision. It, it's, it's a choice to humble yourself. We have placed ourselves under the authority of God, not just in the big choices, but in the everyday issues of life. And so to unpack all of this with you from the Scripture, I want, I want to think about five ways to know if you are humbling yourself. Because as soon as you start thinking, you are humble, probably means you're not. <laughs> I sure am humble. Yeah, I'm real proud of it too. Yeah. <laughs> and so we just, just throw that out the window. Because God never says, be humble. Because he knows as soon as we start measuring ourselves, I wonder if I'm really humble, then it probably means we're not. So he gives us this, this verb command, humble yourself. In other words, bring yourself under the authority of God in everyday issues of life. And, and I want to just kind of unpack this with these five, five ways. There's, there's more than this. You could, you could preach a long, long sermon or four or five or six sermons on this. But I just want to give you today five, five ways to be able to look at your life and see if you are in the process of humbling yourself. And we're going to look at one passage of Scripture for, for, for each one of these. The first one's here in 1 Corinthians 1. And our, and our first thought is this. Humility gives God the credit. Humility gives God the credit. First Corinthians 1, not an unfamiliar passage to many of you. <clears throat> We've read it on a number of occasions for a number of different reasons. It's one of those pivotal, great theological <laughs> passages of Scripture. But it will start to read in verse 26. First Corinthians 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, means they don't amount to much of anything, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Humility gives God the credit for our salvation. 
Humility recognizes that God did not save us because of our personal worth. There is a lot of theology out there and in certain devotionals and certain uh, musical songs and various things that God just looked down and he just, he just thought you were so cool that he thought he'd save you. That is so totally unscriptural. God, God, I mean, people, people preach it all the time. God, God, He saw so much value in you that He wanted to redeem you. Hogwash. <laughs> That's not what God saved you. God saved you because He wanted to. He, he looked at us and He said, here's this world full of sinners in rebellion against me, but, but, I'm, but, but I'm gonna die on the cross and redeem them. He saw no value in us whatsoever. And the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians, the Corinthians had kind of a hang-up with, with being Greek. And they were so proud of the fact that they were Greek and they were wealthy. And they had this kind of an upper-class city. And, and, and so Paul starts out and he says, hey, you know, you guys look around at each other and, and you see who, who's God saving. He said, not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. God's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And he goes on through there saying, God, God did it. He saved us not because of our personal worth. And when we get to heaven, it's only going to be because of His grace. Not because of something we did to deserve it, or because God saw some inherent value in a bunch of rebellious sinners. And humility agrees that God should get all the credit, and humility is happy about that. Humility doesn't say, well, I, I think I should get a little bit of the credit. I mean, I'm not really that bad. Well, if you, if, if you start feeling that way, then you haven't really humbled yourself before the Lord. So, first of all, <laughs> humility gives God the credit for our salvation and everything else. Number two, Humility recognizes the source of all blessing. Just turn a few pages over to chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is an easy phrase to remind yourself of. I would encourage you to learn this phrase, repeat it to yourself. Look around at all the things God has blessed you with and repeat this phrase to yourself. Make it a weekly practice, a daily practice if you need to. 1 Corinthians 4. Verses 7 and 8. I'm sorry, just verse 7. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. For who makes you differ from another? Or what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And as I mentioned to you, the Corinthians were very, very proud that they were Greek. They were actually quite, quite wealthy. The church, the whole town was quite a wealthy town. Those who were in the church at, at Corinth had, had apparently brought much of that attitude into the fellowship, and they tended to compare themselves to each other. And they seemed to be quite, if you read through 1 Corinthians, they, they seemed to be quite competitive about who got the most prestige and attention. 
You saw in earlier chapters there, if you read through 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and chapter 3, they're all going around bragging about who baptized them. Well, Paul baptized me. Well, Apollos baptized me. They're always striving for, for, for attention and prestige. And, and, and Paul says, hey, wait a minute. Think about this. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it from God, then why are you bragging about it as though you hadn't received it? Great question as we look around at our stuff and all of us here in America, we got stuff, we got houses, we got TVs, we got stacks of DVDs, we've got, we, we, we got, we got the lands, we got, we got, we got just all kinds of stuff. And it's good to look at all of that and say, what do I have that I did not receive? You see, humility recognizes the source of all blessings. Our talents, our skills, our looks, our intelligence, our education, our possessions, our financial standing, our health, our position in life, everything we have is a gift from God, and He can take it away in a heartbeat if He wishes to do so. Humility recognizes that God is the source of all blessing. Number three, James chapter four, if you looked at James chapter four. <coughs> James chapter 4, and our third thought in here is, humility acknowledges God's providence. Humility acknowledges God's providence. James chapter 4, look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I like to think of it as your breath on that 40 below day that Joe is praying for. Just, it's gone. Instead, you, you ought to say, James says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Meaning, if we don't acknowledge the providence of God, then, then James says we, we're living in sin. We go around making our plans. I'm going to move here. I'm going to go there. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to, I'm going to plant this. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make money. I'm going to resell that. It's all going to go. Man, the next two or three years is going to be great. And James says, what? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Okay, make your plan. But he said, if you're not acknowledging God's providence, he said, you, you're living in sin. You should say, if the Lord is willing, I will do this or I will do that. I might be dead tomorrow for all I know. I'm not planning on it, but who is? See, humility acknowledges God's providence. Humility realizes that God rules in the daily circumstances of life. Every heartbeat, every job accomplished, every trip taken, every setback, every breakdown, every dollar made, every dollar lost. God is overseeing all of the circumstances of life and He's working all things together for the good of those who love Him. And I know many of you are well familiar with that verse, Romans 8.28. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him. You see, humility acknowledges 
God's providence. And so rather than boasting about even in your own heart what you're going to do next week or next month or next year and how much money you're going to make with this and that and, and what you're going to do with your life and on and on and on, James says, no, no, you, you better be, be thinking every single day. Every plan you make, the Lord wills, I will do this or that. Because we don't have a clue about tomorrow. So humility gives God the credit. Humility recognizes the source of all blessing. Humility acknowledges God's providence. Number four, humility focuses on others. Humility focuses on others. <clears throat> and the verse we'll take a look at is Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians in chapter 2. Again, a very, very familiar passage to many of you. One of those pivotal theological passages for a whole bunch of reasons. Philippians chapter 2. And we'll begin to read in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, <coughs> if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And such a pivotal phrase here, verse 3 and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There's the phrase, one of the many. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." You see, humility realizes that life is not all about me. Life is about serving the Lord Jesus Christ and serving others. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, Paul writes. Don't just look out for yourself. Look out for the interests of other people. Be like Jesus, he said, who was willing to lay aside the glory of heaven and take on all of the limitations of being a human and submit to the will of God the Father, even though, now listen to this, even though Jesus Christ is totally 100% equal with God the Father. He voluntarily humbled himself. He placed himself under the authority of God the Father, even though in every way in the Godhead he was exactly equal to the power and authority and wisdom and knowledge of God the Father. It's an astounding thought. We often think, well, I need to submit myself because this person, maybe they got more power than I've got. Okay, Jesus Christ... This says he humbled himself, even though he was equal with God. He voluntarily submitted to the Father's will, even to the point of death on the cross. He voluntarily took on the limitations of being human. He got tired. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He felt pain. He endured grief. He endured, as the book of Hebrews tells us, chapter 12, he endured hostility from sinners. 
He could have destroyed all the opposition against himself with the word of his power. But he didn't. He, he gave up his rights as God the Son and the creator of the world and allowed himself to be crucified because, as Hebrews 12 says, it's because of the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and despised the shame. You see, humility focuses on others. If we are humbling ourselves before the, before the Lord, we are not focused on me. We are focused on other people. Humility gives God the credit. Humility recognizes the source of all blessing. Humility acknowledges God's providence. Humility focuses on others. And then our fifth and final thought here, humility embraces servanthood. Humility embraces servanthood. And we will take a look at the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10. Gospel of Mark in chapter 10. Again, another, oh, such important, fabulous verses, great teaching from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Humility embraces servanthood. Mark chapter 10, and we're going to begin to read in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Him, came to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want You to do for us whatever we ask. Now, immediately, if you are reading the Scripture, little red lights should start going off in your brain. Here's two human disciples looking at the Son of God saying, Jesus, please give us what we want. <laughs> oh, yikes. We won't even continue to do you know, You know where that's going, okay? And Jesus, in very kindness, he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Well, he knows what they're going to ask. And look what they ask. Just, they are not humbling themselves, I'll tell you right now. They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Oh, Lord Jesus, when you get your kingdom and you're ruling the world from Jerusalem, let us sit next to you while you're on the throne, will you? Yeah. I just, yeah. But please, Lord, please, please, do, do. Do what we want you to do for us. Oh boy. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, of course, the stupid statement, oh yes, Lord, we are able. <laughs> they don't even know what he's talking about. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized in other words, they're going to die a violent death, just, just like Jesus was. But he says, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. You see, they weren't, they weren't very humble themselves either. But wait a minute, how come he's getting what I'm not getting? See, and so Jesus then gives this such, it is so incredibly powerful words to what Jesus says here. Jesus called them to himself, verse 42. Gather around, guys. Come on, gather around. I got, I got to tell you something. Get this now, guys. I got, I got to tell you something. He called them to himself and he says this. You know 
that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Oh, that is so foundational to the Christian life. Humility embraces servanthood. Humility does not see power or position in the kingdom of God as a life goal. Humility does not seek special privileges from the Lord Jesus. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, then serve others. You want to be in a good position in the kingdom, Jesus says, then be a slave to everybody. You know, slaves have no rights. Slaves have no expectation of freedom. Slaves have no expectation of a future. Slaves have no expectation of comforts. Slaves exist for the benefit and purposes of the master. And Jesus says, you want to be first in line? Then go to the back of the line. You want to be at the top of the pyramid? Then go to the bottom of the pyramid. Because he says, in my kingdom... This whole authority thing is nothing like the world. In my kingdom, he says, the great people are down at the bottom serving. In my kingdom, the, the, the people who are, trying, who are trying to earn points with God, they're going to go to the back of the line and serve. He says, I didn't even come to be served. I'm God. I created all of you guys. I didn't even come here to be served. I came to serve. His entire life in ministry was for the benefit of others to ransom us from the penalty of sin. How do we know if we are in the process of humbling ourselves? And I say in the process, because it's not a one-time decision, I guarantee it. It is, it is a lifestyle. You don't get on your knees before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I hereby today, I humble myself before you, and, and, and you're fixed for life. Oh, no. You probably need to do that about every hour. Maybe every minute and a half. You see, we, we, we are in the process of humbling ourselves. That's why Jesus expressed it, and, and all throughout the Scripture, it, it's not an adjective, it's a verb. It's something that you do. You, you are always humbling yourself. It's a lifestyle. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy, I am being poured out like a drink offering. You see, humbling yourself is a daily commitment. Bowing before the Lord, subjecting yourself to His will, giving up your rights, dying to self. It is an act of the will. It is a lifestyle choice. It is a daily decision. But if we are, we are in the practice, we are developing the habit of giving God the credit and recognizing Him as the source of all blessing and acknowledging the providence of God in all the circumstances of life. And if our focus is on others and we are embracing servanthood, then we are in the process of humbling ourselves. We had a great quote this week. A guy said this. He said, Every good thing in the life of a believer grows in the soil of humility. 
I love that. Every good thing in the life of a believer grows in the soil of humility. You see, without humility, we, we are useless in the kingdom of God. In Psalm 51, that beautiful psalm of repentance, King David writes, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. James 4.10 and James chapter 4 there again, he, he challenges us, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Don't try to be humble. Strive to humble yourself, and you will be incredibly useful in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, it's such a challenge for us. We are by nature, we are sinners. We're sinners because we sin, and we sin because we're sinners. And we just love to do things to feel good about ourselves and it is so difficult for us, Lord, to make a daily, regular practice of humbling ourselves before the God of heaven. Yet, yeah, Lord, that is exactly what you command us to do. Lord, as we think back to the stories of Daniel, Daniel 3 and 4 and 5, what, what pictures of pride and arrogance and people being lifted up against God and then we have beloved Daniel, as you called him. A man of humility, a man who humbled himself, not only before the king, but before God, before the God of heaven. Lord, as we walk through this old sin-cursed world, and as we wrestle with our own foolishness and our own mistakes and our own flaws and our own sin that's in our own hearts, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to to. Make a regular daily practice to humble ourselves in the sight of God. Help us, we pray, Lord. We certainly need it. In Jesus' name, amen.